Hey, I'm Murph. I'm a former heroin addict and current alcoholic, and you're listening to Self-Medicated, a podcast series inspired by the harm reduction movement and informed by my own personal experience using all sorts of drugs for damn near 30 years now. This is episode one of the program. Thanks so much for tuning in. From day one, you were a real pain in the arse. That's my mother, Jane. Your kindergarten teacher said, Matthew is bright, alert, and gets along with others in class. However, he questions any directions given to him and shows more interest in being the center of attention than he does in his schoolwork. I'd give that a B- minus overall. Okay, here's the comment section of your report card from fifth grade. Homework not completed or late, disrupts class, does not respect authority, conduct and attitude undesirable, speaks out of turn, does not sit correctly in chair... That must have been the Pledge of Allegiance thing. Oh, definitely. My homeroom teacher was the only one in the whole school who made us stand and put our hands over our hearts for the Pledge of Allegiance every goddamn morning. And you wouldn't do it? Well, no. I thought it was weird. And looking back on it now, I think it's downright obscene. That kind of forced nationalism on children. You're ridiculous. Didn't my guidance counselor diagnose me with ODD? That was a psychologist for the school district. She said you might have that oppositional defiant disorder, but she only talked to you for like five minutes. Well, I was carving an anarchist symbol into the desk while she was talking to me, so maybe that tipped her off. (laughs) Yeah. Quick side note for the listeners. Wyoming Valley West is the school district we're talking about here, and I'll admit I was a bit of a handful for my teachers. The administration threatened to expel me and send me to some alternative education facility. Told my folks that might be best for my development. But trust me, when I was there back in the early 90s, the school district's top brass didn't give a shit about students who were having a tough time. And these days, they seem even less concerned with the welfare of children. I mean, get a load of this cruel stunt they just pulled last year. Wyoming Valley West School District is located in a former coal mining town in northeastern Pennsylvania. It's one of the poorest districts in the state. So when officials saw that a families owed some $20,000 to the district over unpaid cafeteria meals, they tried to get their money back. The district threatened to put the kids in foster care if their parents didn't pay. What a bunch of class traders and bullies, huh? You were exhausting. Always questioning everything, but you were a sweet boy and you had a good heart. You know, about the report card, it also says fighting at recess here. Well, I think you got detention for it, but I saw Roberta Roberta Stortz after that somewhere, like Garrity's or somewhere. And she told me you shouldn't have been punished for that because you were sticking up for another kid. There was a group of them, I guess, that were bullying one of the little guys and you went up and told them to stop and they wouldn't. So... You punch them or whatever. But you've always stood up for what you believe in. And if something's not right or not fair, you weren't having it, man. I am crazy like that, yes. But let's talk a little bit about our crazy, wonderful family. You know that bit I have? I come from a big family. My mom's one of nine kids. My dad's one of eight. So I got a lot of aunts and uncles, a shit ton of cousins. And I'd say half of us are functioning alcoholics. Now, the other half are also alcoholics, but they don't function too good. (laughs) Pretty good, huh? Yeah, it is pretty good because your uncle is no longer with us because he didn't function too good. I'm sorry, Mom. So let's talk about Nana and Pop-Pop McDonough uh, and how booze was so much a part of the culture for everyone around here. My parents, when we were little kids, 
the parties were always at our house. So everybody would be drinking, my parents and his brother and wife, and then when my aunt would come in, my father's sister would come into town, like they'd go down to the corner bar. Well, when you were growing up here in Pennsylvania coal country, a lot of people had had their front living room of their house converted into a bar. So there were, you know, bars everywhere. What what do they used to what do they used to call them? Beer gardens, right? Yeah, beer gardens. Exactly, that's what they called them. And the funny thing, there was one on every corner. So when you were a little and you went trick or treating, when we went, you'd go to the beer gardens. So you'd just sneak in, and everybody's drunk, and that's where you'd get all your money. You didn't even have to go to the houses because you you made all your money at the beer gardens with all the drunk guys in there. What about all the coal miners that used to go to Nana McDonough's bar that she ran? They'd go down immediately when they're out of the mines. They went to the bar to wash down the coal dust. God damn, trying to drown that black lung. Truly. They didn't have to wash it down with a shot and a beer. What are you going to use, water after a 16-hour day in the mines? Nah, you got to get a little nip, take the edge off. Speaking of, I'll be right back, Mom. Heads up for the listeners. The story I'm about to tell involves a detailed description of child sexual abuse. It's an incident I personally experienced when I was 11 years old. If you'd like to skip ahead, the story's just about six minutes long, and then I talk about it for another 30 seconds with my mom in far less detail. Okay, here we go. Ah, yes. Whiskey eases my mind. Or numbs it. Either way, it's always been a reliable comfort drug for me. It ain't curing nothing, but it helps keep the train on the tracks. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you my relationship with booze has been nothing but roses. We've had our ups and downs. Since the downs are more interesting, I'm going to share one of those with you. We're starting at the bottom of the barrel here. All the way back to 1993 we go. Jurassic Park's number one at the box office. Jordan's Bulls beat Barkley's Suns in the NBA Finals. Waco, Texas. Federal agents kill a bunch of women and children to win a dick measuring contest with a deranged narcissist. God will have to sort that out, won't he? And in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, I catch a serious beer buzz and experience my first sexual encounter. This is all big-time stuff, you see. It's summertime. I'm 11 years old, so I'm just starting to go through puberty. You know when you're right on the cusp of blossoming? No pimples yet, no rank body odor. I'm rocking the slightest patch of fuzz in the crotch area. At this stage, I'm not quite sure what to do with erections when they randomly pop up. I try rubbing my dick against the couch cushions, flicking it around. I haven't yet cracked the code on ejaculation. I'm hanging out with my buddy Lee a lot that summer. Now, Lee's a couple years older than I am. I sleep over his house often because his bedroom's in the basement. Pull out couch for me to crash on, his own TV with a VCR and Sega Genesis hooked up. Sega! Plus, after his mom goes to bed, we can easily sneak out the cellar doors and gallivant around town. We're out late one night. Lee tries to buy cigarettes at Turkey Hill, but the cashier denies him. I mean, sure, Lee's 13 years old, but come on, Turkey Hill, it's 2 a.m. Anyhow, we leave the store and bump into a local legend named Renee. She was a former blackjack dealer in her mid to late 40s, ridden hard, put away wet kind of gal. Now, her move is buying teenage boys beer in exchange for sex. Everybody knows that. I even recall some of the high school age boys in the neighborhood sharing graphic details of their encounters with her. Stuff like Finger Blast 69. I wasn't sure about the mechanics of it all, but it sounded fun. So we ask Renee if she'll buy cigarettes for us. She not only agrees, she also tells us there's a 12-pack of Rolling Rock in her car that's going to get warm if nobody drinks it. Hey now, we like beer, so while Renee's in Turkey Hill getting us a pack of smokes, Lee suggests we invite her back to our place. You know, our place, Lee's mom's basement. Here's the thing, my buddy Lee is 13, and he's got a couple of years of masturbation under his belt, so it makes sense he's horny. 
I'm 11 and have been feverishly trying to jerk off for over a month, so it makes sense I'm horny. Renee is 40-some years old and has been a serial predator for God knows how long, so it makes sense she's horny. But what makes absolutely no sense is why this grown woman agrees to come back to our place. Why in the world doesn't she just park somewhere secluded and molest us in the tranquil safety of her own car? Who can say? But here we are, the three of us, lounging in Lee's bedroom, drinking Rolling Rocks and watching MTV's The Grind. Welcome back. You're still grinding over here. I'm your host, Eric. It made for decent mood music. At any rate, Renee's sitting on the couch between the two of us, talking about how she used to be a famous Hollywood actress before losing it all in a high-stakes Mahjong tournament at the Trop in Atlantic City. You know, that old chestnut. Eventually, she leans over and starts making out with Lee. I pretend not to watch while chugging my second Rolling Rock. I don't have much of a tolerance at that age, so I'm a little loose. As I polish off my brew, they continue to go at it, you know, fiddling and faddling. Now, I got a whiz real bad, but the bathroom's upstairs, so I'm worried if I go up there, I'll wake Lee's mom up. Now, if she smells beer on me and charges down the basement, that'd be a real bad scene. Because <laughs> at this point, her son's dick's in Renee's hand. So I decide it's best to stay put and hold it. And I am glad I did, because the next thing I know, Renee takes her top off, and her breasts are fucking incredible. <laughs> I shit you not. This woman has foot-long banana-shaped mammaries with areolas the size of dinner plates. I mean, granted, I'm only 11, but in all my years, I ain't seen anything like this. As Renee gives Lee a handjob, the little rascal puts his head in her bosom and sort of wiggles his face around. I mean, he's not quite motorboating her. It's, it's too slow. More like paddle-boating? I lean in for a closer peek, and Renee puts my hand on one of her otherworldly breasts, tells me to take off my jorts. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't aroused, so I tear off those fucking bugle boys like they're on fire. Excuse me, are those bugle boy jeans that you're wearing? Now she's jerking both of us off, one on each side. This sick old broad is cross-country skiing on a pull-out couch. Now, since I never hit the slopes before, I got no clue what to do. I is a smooch in order? I, mean, I don't know where to put my hands. Hell, I don't even know what to look at. To my left, there's shirtless Eric Nice gyrating to some Eurodance remix. All these guys and all these girls are having a good time in hell, right? To my right, I see my old pal Lee getting tugged off to completion. So I just tilt my head back, shut my eyes, and feel the sweet sensation of orgasmic release for the very first time. Mmm. After Renee leaves, I am pumped. I'm high-fiving Lee. That was awesome, man. I finally jizzed. Then Lee tells me no. He jizzed. I actually just pissed everywhere. Turns out my orgasmic release was a monster beer piss that I let rip all over the place. On myself, on the couch, on the carpet. I mean, man, alive, I pissed on Renee. Now look, I hate to give a child molester any credit. But between you, me, and the wall, it was pretty classy of Renee to casually get dressed and say goodnight, as if I hadn't just sprayed the entire room with urine. That old battle axe took my innocence, but she left me with my dignity. So cheers to you, 11-year-old me. Ah. Now if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go piss on Renee's grave. You never told this story to me. It's true. I never told my mom I was sexually abused until I started working on this project. I think I was just worried she'd take it personally, you know, like she should have been there to protect me and whatnot. I wish I could find her. I'd slit her goddamn throat. Also, I didn't really unpack it myself until a couple years ago. Before that, I had it framed as some kind of silly, slightly more fucked up Mrs. Robinson type affair, which is horribly inaccurate. Anyhow, I finally told my mom what happened. You think that's the reason you've done all these drugs? You know, I've thought about it for a few years now, and honestly, for me, 
I believe it's a factor, but not the biggest one. It just doesn't feel like the driving force, you know? Then what do you think is the big driving force? Like, why do you still self-medicate? Because for as long as I can remember, I've been juggling two emotions, rage and sadness, that have both overwhelmed me on several occasions. And whenever they do, it leads to some pretty self-destructive behavior. You'll hear all about that in future episodes. But I imagine those intense feelings come from some combination of the brain I was born with and the world I grew up in. According to my old report cards, I was full of piss and vinegar from the jump. So maybe my conditions were just ripe for all sorts of recklessness. In terms of my worldview, I think there were a few factors that radicalized me in my formative years. First off, it's in my blood. My great-great-grandfather, Tony Maloney, was a member of the Molly Maguires. They were a secret society back in the 1860s and 70s who came over from Ireland to the coal fields of Pennsylvania to stand in solidarity with the organized labor movement here. Hollywood made a subpar movie about him you probably haven't seen. Oscar winner Sean Connery stars in this gritty saga of coal miners fighting for radical change. They won't stop, so we can't stop. These men take justice into their own hands. They're the Molly Maguires. Working conditions and wages were pretty goddamn rotten. They had seven and eight-year-old kids being put to work in the mines that were ready to collapse. Some of them did. All while a handful of rich coal barons got richer. Eventually, thousands of immigrant miners went on strike, but then the coal companies hired a private police force to bust up the union and kick their asses back down the mine shaft. That's where my double great-grandpa Maloney comes in, with the other Molly Maguires, and they fought alongside the striking miners, went toe-to-toe with the notorious goon squad known as the Coal and Iron Police. Long story short, things got real fucking violent. They clashed nonstop for almost a year, and then the coal companies doubled down. They used the full force of the coal and iron police to round up as many mollies as they could find and charged them all with murders they couldn't prove. But they hired a team of well-connected lawyers who prosecuted the case, so ten members of the Molly Maguires were found guilty and sent to the gallows. And they made a real spectacle of hanging these guys because they wanted to send a message. And it was received. Broke up the union, the surviving mollies scattered, and the miners went back to work. Now that should be the end of it, but remember, these coal barons were ruthless bastards. I mean, they literally worked children to death for profit. So they weren't done with the Molly Maguires. They hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency to hunt down anyone who escaped the gallows. And they found my great-great-grandpa, Tony Maloney, in a bar in New York City. One of their agents just waltzed in, shot him dead, and waltzed out. But here's the thing. The greedy coal companies weren't killing militant labor organizers for sport. It was out of fear. Because if they let it take root, they know what the biggest threat to their wealth is. Solidarity! One of the first moments in my life I can remember that really helped radicalize me came in November of 1993. I was 12 when I went to the movies with my cousins to see Adam's Family Values. Now, if you've seen it, you know it's a Thanksgiving classic. If not, let me introduce you to the specific scene from the film that got me fired up. The Adams kids are shipped off to summer camp, where Wednesday is forced to play Pocahontas in the camp stage production of The First Thanksgiving, while her nemesis plays the lead pilgrim. But you know Wednesday's got something up her sleeve. She horrifies all the counselors and parents in the audience with some Thanksgiving truths. We cannot break bread with you. Huh? Becky, what's going on? Wednesday! You have taken the land which is rightfully ours. The gods of my tribe have spoken. They have said, do not trust the pilgrims. Gary, she's changing the words. I've decided to scalp you and burn your village to the ground. Speaking of movies, you ever see They Live? It's a John Carpenter picture. Hmm. Well, I was about 15 years old the first time I put on the glasses. The poor and the underclass are growing. 
racial justice and human rights are non-existent. They have created a repressive society, and we are their unwitting accomplices. Listen, this ain't one of them performative, I'm so woke routines that bumbling white folks have been doing a lot of recently. It's just a fact. This is the society we live in. It can be depressing and infuriating, but it's true. Also, it ain't a competition here. Nobody can really put on the glasses until somebody else hands them a pair. For me, it was an old hippie named Moss. I used to buy very low-quality weed off her, that brown stuff that's all dried up and breaks apart like particle board, seeds popping out, you know, your basic swag. Whenever me and my buddies would buy a bag from her, she'd roll a joint and start spitting the truth. And let me tell you, Moss's swag may have been garbage, but her monologues were second to none. I remember one time she told me MLK wasn't killed by some racist lone wolf for saying this. I have a dream. He was actually assassinated by the federal government for telling everybody exactly what stands in the way of his dream becoming a reality. Capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. Remember now, I'm only 15 years old and I'm hearing this for the first time, so I was a little skeptical. But Moss worked part-time at the local library, said I could stop by any time if I wanted to see those receipts. At this point, I've been buying weed off her for a little while, and she's made a bunch of wild claims about the United States of America. Of course, I didn't trust the government at all, but my folks didn't have a computer when I was in high school, no cell phone. So, you know, I'm constantly sifting through bullshit. I don't know what to make of all of it. So I got stoned one Sunday afternoon, went down the library. Turns out Moss wasn't bullshitting about anything. She's got access to this thing called LexisNexis. Holy hell. She's showing me declassified documents from the CIA, research papers from all over the world, decades of newspaper and magazine articles. I mean, you ain't asking G's for this shit. I learned the truth, not just about Martin Luther King, but Malcolm X, Asada Shakur, Fred Hampton, Abby Hoffman, the Weather Underground, the My Lai Massacre, the Japanese internment camps, the Tuskegee Experiment, MK Ultra, the McCarthy hearings, Watergate, Whitewater, all the American history you need to know. Moss had it. Eventually, I put all the pieces together. Once I realized America is a country founded on genocide, built by slavery, and expanded with nuclear force into a global empire of exploitation, <laughs> I started to self-medicate with the strongest drugs I could get my hands on. Dear Lord. Just trying to numb the rage and sadness is all. Well, how'd that work out for you, bud? Eh, not so great at first. Had to tweak what I was prescribing myself. And it was the heroin that was getting the best of me, so what do you say we talk about that, Mom? Yeah, let's. That'll lighten the mood. <laughs> I developed a pretty outlandish habit. Started when I was 18. Well, I know nothing about it. I had never seen it or anything before you were doing it. Growing up, people did pot and pills, stuff like that. But heroin was like, you know, Janis Joplin or John Bellucci. But nobody I actually knew. When did you first find out I was shooting up? I found a needle in your coat pocket. Remember your Eagles jacket? The pouch? The iconic starter jacket, mm-hmm. You know how you go in denial and stuff. But I don't think I was actually that. Because I never was in denial with you. If I, I would never sit oh, Matthew would never do that. There was nothing that was ever in my mind that I was like, Matthew would never do that. Matthew would always do that, whatever it was. So when I found the needle and the little bags and all that, I didn't know what, what to do, where to turn, or who to talk to. Then we got into all the stealing stuff and the selling stuff, and you'd say you were good for a time... And I'd always pray that you were, but then something would go missing. 
And one of the worst things was, remember that video camera? Oh, uh, yeah. It was a nice one. Brand new. We took it to Billy's wedding. Remember? Uncle Bill's second wedding, yeah. Well, the kicker was, it didn't belong to us. We borrowed it from a friend, remember? Shit, I remember, yeah. You weren't there, but Daddy and I filmed the whole wedding, the reception, the whole thing. And then after we got home, you took it, pawned it, whatever it is you did for drug money. So we were embarrassed and had to make up a lie to tell our friends that we were like at a truck stop and lost it or some ridiculous story like that. They were probably thinking, what the hell is going on with the Meyer family? Anyway, in the end, we replaced it with another brand new one. Sorry about that, Mom. That stinks. In the meantime, you never checked to see if there was a tape in there, and there was. So that was gone forever. All the video we took of the whole wedding, reception, etc. Of course, they're divorced now, so what's the point? <laughs> All right, well, at least there's that, huh? What can I say? Everyone's the best medicine in town. But the top shelf of the opioid cabinet ain't sustainable. At least not for me. So these days, I got myself on a strict regimen of booze, weed, psychedelics, nicotine, some amphetamines here and there. Matthew, that's not good either. You shouldn't even be smoking. I know. I've cut back a lot. For real, I'm figuring out how to channel my rage into creative projects. And for now, I minimize my sadness with the drugs that'll do the least amount of harm. Please don't smoke. Okay, love you, Mama. I'm serious. Promise me. That's the outro music. Gotta go. Talk soon. That's it for side A of episode one. Tune in Friday to hear side B, featuring an interview I did with Jennifer Hornick, a registered nurse who recently joined the harm reduction movement to help us change the shitty drug policies that led to her son Quincy's totally preventable overdose death. Self-Medicated is produced by Michelle Francesca Thomas and Mick Moore with support from the Open Society Foundations. Our theme song is My Congressman by 15, courtesy of Jeff Ott and Hopeless Records. All other music composed by Lucas Hazlitt, and all episodes are engineered by Emily Chen Newton. I'm Murph. Love and solidarity. Goodbye. Are those bugle boys you're wearing? Every citizen in America has the right to rebuttal their government.